and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Sarah Sherman Stokes, Associate Director of the Immigrants' Rights and Human Trafficking Clinic at Boston University School of Law. We will discuss her article, Reparations for Central American Refugees, which is published in the Denver Law Review. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. So uh, this is a really interesting paper about what is unfortunately a really timely subject uh, as well. Um, f- for listeners who may not be as familiar with immigration law and in particular with refugee and asylum law, I was wondering if you could start by talking a little bit about what a refugee is, right? I mean, is that like a term people understand what that term means in kind of an anecdotal sense, but does it does it have a legal meaning when it comes to United States immigration law? Sure, absolutely. And I, um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. This is a very timely and relevant topic. Um, we're talking just the day after a photo surfaced of a father and his 23-month-old daughter um, who drowned trying to cross the Rio Grande to seek asylum in the United States um, from there from Central America. Um, so unfortunately, this is um, pretty pretty topical. Um, so to your question, um, yes, uh, asylum um, is a, a legal protection that we provide to people in the United States um, or at ports of entry who are fleeing persecution in their home countries. Um, and to that end, the Immigration and Nationality Act uh, provides us with a definition of, of what a refugee is, and a refugee is um, is any person who's outside any country of such person's nationality, um, or if the person has no nationality, outside any country in which the person last resided, who's either unable or unwilling to return to that country, or unable or unwilling to avail herself of the protection of that country because she suffered past persecution, or because she has a well-founded fear of future persecution on account of one of five protected grounds. That is, the persecution must be because of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or her political opinion. Um, so you, you have to satisfy that definition uh, of a refugee in Section 208 of the Immigration and Nationality Act um, in order to be granted asylum. Mm-hmm. So just to be super clear, if if somebody comes to the United States and proves that they're a refugee under that definition, and so they're qualified for asylum, how is that different than the other circumstances that might obtain if they couldn't prove those particular uh, categories of things? Sure. So, um, right. So if, if, if an applicant is able to um, meet the statutory requirements uh, of a refugee and the statutory requirements of asylum, um, then she can be granted asylum legal protection in the United States. Um, if not, there are some other lesser forms of protection, like withholding of removal and relief under the Convention Against Torture. And I, I say lesser because those things aren't pathways to a green card and ultimately U.S. citizenship, although you do get some uh, protection and a work permit to be in the United States. Um, the one thing I'll also mention is that the definition of refugee um, is often thrown around in sort of, you know, colloquial conversation or sort of, um, you know, layperson conversation um, 
And refugee with a capital R is sort of how we think of people who are designated abroad as refugees by UNHCR, um, the agency that identifies refugees abroad. So if you, you know, we might hear in the news of someone who's uh, a Somali who is in a refugee camp in Kenya and has been given the formal designation of a refugee by UNHCR and then is brought to the United States to be resettled. That's a different process. Um, but that person is, is also sort of a refugee, capital R. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're talking here about people who have come to the United States or come to the United States border of their own volition and are in potentially going to claim refugee status or one of these other statuses you referred to, like withholding of removal or some other form of legal protection under international conventions. And if they satisfy those requirements, as I take it, then they can stay in the United States by extension, that would imply that if they can't satisfy those requirements, then they would be subject to deportation. Is that right? That's correct. So um, if they if they are not granted asylum or some other form of protection, like relief under the Convention Against Torture or withholding of removal, they would be subject to deportation. Now, there are appeals um, or you know there are other forms of relief they may be eligible for. But um, yes, if they're denied those forms of relief, then they would be deported back to their um, home country. Okay. So if somebody comes to the United States and they want to claim protection as a refugee or one of these other forms of related protection, what do they actually have to do? Like, how do they go about proving that to the immigration authorities? I mean, I assume that, you know, they can't just say it and make it so that they have to make a showing or they have to be evaluated in some way in order to determine whether or not they're entitled to refugee status. What does that process look like? And what is that? what kind of burden does that put on the people who are trying to claim refugee status and asylum? Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. Um, it, there is a process and it's a process that has become increasingly um, fraught and increasingly difficult, particularly under this administration. Um, so in short, um, sort of, there's sort of a a long process, but I'll take you through sort of one example. Um, let's say, um, uh, a young woman comes to the U S Mexican border. Um, she's from El Salvador and, um, she wants to claim asylum because she was persecuted on account of her sexual orientation. She was, um, maybe, uh, you know, beat up by the police. Um, she was uh, persecuted by family members, um, because of her sexual orientation. Um, she was, uh, unlawfully, you know, detained, um, things like that happened to her. Um, and, and they said they were doing that be- because she was gay. Um, so she gets to the U S Mexico border under this administration. She's going to have a number of additional hurdles to clear before she can actually seek asylum. So under section 208 of the immigration and nationality act, um, it's pretty clear that you can seek asylum anywhere. It can be at a port of entry. It can be just in the interior of the United States. It can be anywhere. Uh, but under this administration, um, the, the government has attempted to funnel people to ports of entry. Um, this, of course, has been challenged in court, uh, but to funnel people at, to ports of entry and then to engage in what we call metering. Um, so to limit the number of asylum seekers that can cross and, and request asylum on any given day. Um, I was down in Tijuana twice over the last several months to work with an organization called Alotrolado, which is an incredible organization that's assisting these asylum seekers. And I was able to see firsthand 
just how harrowing this process is. Um, you get a tiny number and you have to wait for your number to be called. There are literally thousands of people waiting in Mexico. They're not safe. Um, they don't have shelter. Uh, they can't work. They don't have food. Um, and they're just waiting for their to exercise their legal right to claim asylum. Um, the government under Trump has also uh, sort of put forward what are called the migrant protection protocols. Now, that Orwellian name sort of belies their actual purpose. There's nothing about protection involved here. It requires people to remain in Mexico, even after they cross and get a court hearing. Um, they have to go back to Mexico to wait. That's unprecedented and, again, being challenged in court, um, but has for now been allowed to, to stand. Um, so if this young woman, let's call her Anna, um, you know, she goes and waits for her number. Her number's finally called. She crosses. She says, I'm afraid. She's then going to have what's called a credible fear interview where she has to, um, and it, it's supposed to be a very sort of low threshold. Um, the idea is that we're not going to hold people to the ultimate standard of having to prove asylum at that credible fear interview um, because at that time she's unrepresented. She hasn't had an opportunity to marshal evidence unless she's brought evidence with her from El Salvador, which is uh, which does happen, but is, is tough, right? These are people that often are fleeing for their lives. They don't have time to gather evidence and documents and affidavits and police reports. Um, so, you know, but if she's able to clear that first hurdle of establishing a credible fear, um, then she will likely get um, placed in removal proceedings with an opportunity to make her claim in front of a judge. So she'll get a court date. Under the current administration, she will then have to return to Mexico and wait. And it's worth noting that throughout this, it's extremely unlikely that she has access to any kind of legal counsel. So she is not an English speaker. Uh, she may not have a lot of formal education. Uh, Spanish, you know, in some, in, in many cases, you know, even Spanish might not be the applicant's first language. They may, their first language may be in an indigenous language. Um, so the inequity between the resources that the government lawyer is going to have in court or the government asylum officer has during that credible fear interview, um, the inequity between the resources that that person has and the applicant are uh, dramatic. Um, and um, then she's going to get called. She'll have a series of court dates, at which time, um, as you mentioned, she'll be required to present evidence. Um, she'll be required to present evidence that, for example, she was persecuted as um, a member of a particular social group, let's say gay women in El Salvador. Um, so she'll have to show that there's a nexus, that there's a connection between the persecutions she suffered um, and her membership in this particular social group. And, and that can be hard to do, um, increasingly so because under this administration, uh, the attorney general has Jeff Sessions and, and his um, and, and those subsequently in that role um, who have been really kind of dismantling the asylum system piece by piece through decisions that they certify to themselves uh, that target specifically people from Central America, from the Northern Triangle, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, who are seeking asylum based on having been persecuted by private actors, such as family members or gangs, um, even though it's well-established and all the circuit courts to have considered it agree that private actors can be persecutors in a successful claim for asylum. Um, that's something that, that this administration has really attacked. So 
while the case law and the statute and the regulations make clear that she only has to show a one in 10 chance that she will be persecuted um, in order to be granted asylum, in practice, that standard is, is often much higher. So it's my understanding that although it sounds like these are mostly people trying to enter the United States from the Mexican border, that a very large percentage of them, as you kind of alluded to, are coming from different Central American countries. Why is it that we're seeing so many asylum claims from from that part of the world? And you know, is there a history of United States involvement in, in that part of the world that might be implicated in in the decisions or the need for some of these people to claim asylum? Absolutely, there is, and I think we really have to be honest about the U.S. role in creating the peril here. Um, and this is what I talk about a lot in, in the article, Reparations for Refugees. Um, uh, I think, you know, it's really important that we, you know, I could have gone back even further. I went back to the 1980s and the 1990s, um, but quite frankly, we could have gone back quite a bit further. I just didn't quite have enough space. Um, but, you know, as many people know, during the 1980s and 1990s, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Nicaragua sustains pretty devastating civil wars. Um, and there were rampant human rights abuses. Tens of thousands of people were killed or tortured across the region. And at the time, the United States was strongly allied with the governments in power in El Salvador and Guatemala. And, and the United States was pumping millions of dollars into military and paramilitary training. Um, there were mass bombing campaigns. Uh, in Guatemala, the Truth Commission there you know, has blamed the degree of brutality in which over 200,000 people were killed, um, largely on training that military officers received at the U.S.-run School of the Americas. Um, and at that time, many of those who survived the violence ended up seeking asylum in the United States. Um, the estimates are that between 1981 and 1990, almost 1 million Salvadorans and Guatemalans entered the United States. And, and this matters because um, the that those civil wars and the sort of devastation they wrought have been the um, really the 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 garden in which today's political violence has flourished. Um, you know, and at that what we saw at that time was incredible discrimination against asylum seekers from Central America. It was first in 1982 that the ACLU revealed suspected evidence of bias against asylum seekers from Central America in a lawsuit um, in what later came to be known as the ABC uh, lawsuit and later the ABC settlement agreement, um, where it became clear that there was a disparity in treatment um, between asylum seekers from Central America and asylum seekers from elsewhere in the world. Um, we saw asylum grant rates for Salvadorans and Guatemalans at 3%, whereas asylum seekers from other countries like from Poland or the Soviet Union were at 60% and 40%. Um, I mean, the contrast mm. was stark. So I say all this because I think we have to understand our history and the way we've treated Central American asylum seekers in the past to understand what's happening today. Now, now fast forward from the civil wars in Central America, you have an enormous number of people uh, being coming to the United States from Central America to seek asylum. Um, and at the same time, you have, you know, you have lots of other things uh, happening. Um, You've got, you know, folks struggling in poor neighborhoods across the United States to make ends meet that have 
fled north to escape civil war. Many children are left behind in Central America, raised by their grandparents. Um, there's crises of hunger and unemployment and, and just sort of the long-term and debilitating impact of civil war. Um, and you have the rise of the concurrent rise of gangs. And it's important to note that the Central American gangs we hear about today, MS-13 and, and uh, Calle de Ocho or 18th Street, were actually born in the United States, largely in U.S. jails as immigrant detainees and inmates were challenged by U.S. prison gangs. Um, and then in 1996, we have incredibly regressive immigration laws passed uh, by Congress and signed by President Clinton um, that have a devastating impact on immigrant communities, deporting more than 67,000 immigrants as a result of criminal convictions. Um, and this sort of mass deportation back to Central America, and, and these were for criminal convictions, it's worth noting that were often um, not fe- not felony convictions, were often misdemeanor, non-aggravated uh, crimes, uh, petty theft, petty misdemeanors that resulted in, in deportation. Um, and so you have all these sort of things happening at once. You've got family disintegration, um, children leaning on gangs for support because they didn't have support at home, parents being deported who have been inculcated, you know, with sort of gang culture in the United States. And you've got tough on crime policies sweeping Central America. You've got a lot of guns in Central America because there wasn't a very effective disarmament campaign in much of the region. So you have a number of factors um, sort of contributing to increasing social and political violence across Central America. Um, gang violence um, is is rampant. The mano duro or sort of heavy-handed enforcement policies of Central America are uh, leading to booming prison populations in Central America. Prisons are overcrowded. They're run by inmates. They're unsafe. Uh, you've got kids who are raised without parents. Uh, you've got unemployment. Uh, there are trade agreements the U.S. has forced Central America into that are devastating communities. Climate change is wreaking havoc on, um, you know, what had previously been successful farming endeavors. So you've got all these things happening at once. And then in 2011, you've got another wave of Central Americans coming to the United States seeking safety. And, and I say the word wave with with some reticence because I think language is important and the, the language that's been used to describe Central American refugees, I think, is really dangerous and pejorative. We've heard words like wave and surge and uh, invasion, infestation by President Trump, um, which is, you know, incredibly dehumanizing way to talk about people. Um, But in any case, you've got large numbers of Central Americans between 2011 and and peaking really in 2014 that are fleeing a lot of violence that we had a hand in creating. Um, And and that is increasingly what we're seeing now. we're seeing migrants who are fleeing poverty, yes, but more than that, violence, significant domestic violence and significant gang violence. Um, when UNHCR um, interviewed uh, children and moms who were fleeing um, fleeing violence, they found that nearly two-thirds of them had suffered harms and persecution that warranted international refugee protection. Uh, these are not people who wake up one day and decide, uh, you know, maybe I'll give the United States a try. These are children and families who feel that they have no other choice but to flee to the United States for protection. Yeah. I mean, it seems like from your description that there's kind of a gap, a big gap between what asylum law is supposed to do in theory 
and how it seems to be working in practice on the ground. And you've described the sort of increasing, it sounds almost like foot dragging at the border to just make the process increasingly burdensome and maybe discourage people from trying to apply in the first place. And then narrowing categories of people who can qualify for for asylum. So it sounds like at least what I got from your paper was that, you know, the the immigration authorities are sort of trying to define out certain forms of discrimination as being non-political in some way or not qualified for asylum status. And then if I understand it correctly, there was also a period of time in which people from Central America, at least in some circumstances, had certain kinds of protections from being deported and that those have now come come to an end or been been terminated by the government. Is is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think two things that you mentioned there that are important. One is um, you're absolutely right that, that, the, that the United States government under this administration, but quite frankly, also under the Obama administration, and it's worth noting that the Obama administration does bear significant blame for the way that Central American uh, refugees have been treated. Um, and sort of they have, they played an active role in creating the the, what I would consider sort of nightmare that we're seeing right now, where we're seeing, you know, kids in detention in abysmal conditions. That is not, it is certainly on a scale that is unprecedented and the scope is um, unprecedented and sort of the degree of horrors, but it is also not new. Um, it, it was happening previously, but you're right to say that there is this sort of insidious approach by this administration to kind of systematically narrow the grounds on which people can successfully seek protection. And also um, the efforts that this administration is using to deter um, Central Americans in particular. Um, Although I I should mention, it's not only Central Americans. Um, When I was down in Tijuana, we certainly met people from all over the world who were seeking asylum. I met a young man who fled homophobic violence uh, in West Africa, who literally still had a bullet in his arm um, from having been attacked there. Um, I met political refugees from Ethiopia and Eritrea, um, really people from all over the world. Um, mm-hmm. So in, in any case, it, it, they are trying to, to narrow um, the, the bases on which people can seek asylum and engaging in efforts at deterrence that are really putting people at risk. And when you, you know, when you hear about children who are dying in the desert, um, that's a direct result of, of the policies of this administration. Um, when you hear about children who are dying in custody because of the flu or dehydration, that's again, part of the policies of this administration. And, um, and they're, you know, incredibly upsetting. Um, to your second point about whether there, there had been um, some protections available to certain classes of Central Americans. Yes, absolutely. And that was the result of um, this ABC case that I mentioned earlier, um, which did have an incredibly positive effect um, for certain groups of Central Americans. So, you know, it, it was um, sort of uh, uh, time sensitive. So there was a settlement reached in 1990 that was approved by the Northern District Court of California in 1991, and the agreement provided de novo asylum interviews um, and adjudication for previously denied cases of Salvadorans who had arrived in, who had arrived in the United States by September of 1990, and, and certain Guatemalans that had arrived by October of 1990. 
Um, the state, the, the settlement also provided work authorization and stays of deportation for certain Central American asylum seekers, as well as a prohibition on detention for certain class members. Um, so this this was hu- hugely um, important and incredibly positive um, for large groups of, of Central Americans. It also set out sort of first principles for examining asylum claims that I actually think are really worth revisiting today, including that foreign policy and border enforcement considerations are not relevant to the determination of whether an applicant for asylum has a well-founded fear of persecution. I think this administration would be well served to reread the introductory paragraphs of the ADC case agreement. Um, They are still in effect today, technically, although because of the um, sort of time and time cutoffs, um, you know, migrants had to be here by certain periods of time in 1990. They don't apply to newly arrived immigrants today um, or those that will arrive, you know, tomorrow or in the next few weeks or months. Um, So while it was important and it also created temporary protected status, which allowed um, allowed a, a number of people starting people from Central America, but has also expanded to other countries to provide temporary protect- protection to people who are fleeing environmental disaster um, or ongoing armed conflict. Um, so that, that has been hugely important. Now, again, that stands to potentially be ended by this administration. Um, another sort of piece of their puzzle of trying to dismantle the protections that are there for Central Americans in particular. So just just briefly, while we're still kind of on the subject, I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the sort of individual experience of applying for for asylum, in particular in relation to both the immigration lawyers on the government side and also the immigration judges. I mean, it sounds like the process is one of evaluating what someone's claim would be like in relation to their circumstances uh, back in their home country. And I'm wondering how familiar are are the people on the government side with the day-to-day circumstances in, in Central America? And do you sense that there's any kind of bias or sort of institutional skepticism of these kinds of claims? And to what extent do asylum applicants have representation that would enable them to effectively substantiate their claims? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would start by saying that the burden on, and I don't mean legal burden, I mean just sort of resource burden um, on non-citizens who are seeking asylum is heavy to say the least. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, they're, they're way out resourced. Um, they do not, you know, people who are seeking asylum or anyone who's in removal proceedings or seeking an immigration benefit in the United States is not entitled to counsel except at their own expense. Um, and counsel makes a difference. Um, so, you know, in 2016 and 2017, um, for people who were detained in immigration detention, the average rate of representation was just about 30%. Um, but immigration law is hyper-technical. It's extremely complicated. Um, you know, circuit courts have even noted this hyper-complexity uh, and, and, and how difficult it is to navigate this. Um, so to expect, an, you know, what is often a, an applicant for asylum who's recently fled trauma, uh, who may not have a formal education, or who may not speak English, um, to expect them to sort of marshal evidence in support of their case and put on a legal case against a well-resourced government attorney um, is is quite an undertaking. Um, 
So, you know, one study has found that detained immigrants with with counsel obtained a successful outcome in their case 21% of the time, whereas it was a 2% success rate for um, pro se or unrepresented applicants. Um, that is dramatic. I mean, first of all, even having a lawyer, your, your likelihood of success, it's worth noting, is quite low. Um, but without a lawyer, it's almost impossible. Um, so yes, it is really hard. And, and is there evidence of bias? Um, I, I think anecdotally, I would say absolutely yes. Um, what, what comes to mind are the words of an immigration judge who I obviously won't name, but who sort of casually, I remember saying, gosh, I, I wish we could just basically pretermit all of these Central American claims. Um, you know, there was an assumption that they're all the same, that they're all loser, you know, quote unquote loser cases, that they're all sort of just about gangs and general unrest, um, and that they should be denied, that they were not, you know, qualified to be granted asylum. And not only do I think that's wrong, I think the statute, the regulations and the case law make clear that that's wrong. Um, but it made it clear to me that that particular judge and likely others hold a certain bias and preconceived notion about these cases that is really um, detrimental to our clients. Um, I, I would also note that, you know, many of the immigration judges um, are former DHS attorneys, they're former prosecutors, um, which poses, poses its own set of problems. Mm-hmm. So, so Sarah, I wonder if you could talk a little bit then about how to address this issue, because I mean, it, it seems like, unfortunately, the current administration is, is disinclined to make kind of changes that would be uh, positive for, for these Central American refugees. Are there other governmental agencies or institutions that could do something? In other words, like does, does and should Congress have a role here? And how should policymakers think about this particular problem in relation to people seeking asylum from this particular part of the world? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I mean, so um, I think there are a number of things that could happen. I mean, um, on a sort of uh, policy level, you know, if this administration were inclined to rescind some of the more um, insidious and frankly illegal policies that they've enacted around um, the migrant protection protocols, um, or the Remain in Mexico policy, um, the sort of metering that they're doing, um, that would all be, you know, in beneficial and protective of bona fide refugees to whom we have both domestic and international legal obligations. Um, you know, they could also rescind some of the decisions that Jeff Sessions um, wrote uh, that narrow the bases on which people can seek asylum. So all of those things could be done. Whether or not this administration has the, the will or interest in doing that, I think that's probably a hard no, um, but we can, we can hope. Um, I think perhaps, perhaps uh, we might have more... Um, movement with Congress. Um, the 116th Congress um, is the most diverse Congress to date. There's 102 women, uh, the first Muslim American woman, uh, first Native American woman um, that bring a diversity of progressive um, sort of opinions and, and policy agendas um, that I want to hope could include meaningful immigration reform. Um, and with that, 
what I suggest in my article, um, which is imperfect, but um, but perhaps and perhaps a little over op, overly optimistic, but would be some kind of um, legislative carve out for Central American refugees to whom I argue we we owe something, um, we owe some repair, um, and to, to these refugees that we have wronged for quite frankly, so many decades, um, and so specifically and so insidiously. Um, and it would not be unprecedented to have a sort of legislative carve out for a particular group. We've done it before for Cubans and others, uh, for Amerasians, for Afghan interpreters and, um, and Iraqi interpreters, uh, having a sort of country specific or region specific carve out that provides a pathway to lawful status is, um, absolutely not unprecedented. And I think would be really meaningful and important for this group of, of refugees. So, so maybe Sarah, in closing, you could talk a little bit more about this idea of, of reparations. Um, do you, do you see that as like a legal duty on the part of the United States, maybe under international law, for example, or more as like a moral duty to kind of own up to our country's activities and the effects of those activities abroad? Or is it like a combination of the two in some sense? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. I, I think I, I would say it's a combination of, of both a moral and a legal duty. Um, I mean, I, I think there certainly is a moral obligation to take responsibility for our role in creating the peril. I mean, I, I'm not a, a torts uh, person, but, um, you know, the sort of there's sort of the duty to rescue um, when you have a role in creating the peril kind of idea, um, kind of harkening back to my one L year, but here, but um, I think there is a moral obligation uh, to take responsibility for what we've done and the ways in which we have pretty systematically um, discriminated against Central American asylum seekers in particular uh, in really nefarious ways um, over several decades um, and, and, and certainly there's a legal duty. Um, I mean, we have both domestic and international legal obligations to refugees. Um, we're a party to, we're a state party to the Convention Against Torture. Um, we have an obligation not to return people to a place where they're going to be tortured. Um, so I think there are some international law principles that are important here um, and, and require us to make sure that we're not returning people to a place where they will be harmed or killed. Well, thank, thanks so much for coming on the show today, Sarah. I really appreciate your uh, discussion about this really timely, important, and, and very serious problem that we're dealing with right now. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. It's been a pleasure. And I sing, they built this country, for they came from far away to a land they did not know, the same way you do, my friend. So welcome, welcome, in Medrante, to my country, welcome home, welcome, welcome, in Medrante.
fathers and I sing about their courage For they spoke a foreign language and they labored with their hands The same way you do, my friends So welcome, welcome, immigrante Fathers and I sing about their patience For the work they did was lowly And they dirtied up their clothes They spoke a foreign language And they labored with their hands And they came from far away To a land they did not know The same way you do, my friends 